Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about The Monk. A couple of things before we get into this episode. First of all, apologies once again for my sick voice. Oh. Trust me, it's better than it was. <laughs> we actually tried to record a couple days ago, and I fully sounded like a cartoon mouse. So <laughs> It was adorable, but maybe, you know, not what you were looking for. It was woodland critter squeaky time, for sure. <laughs> Second, we will be presenting at this year's Austin Con, coming up on November 5th. November 4th in the U.S. because Australian time. Mm -hmm. So more on that at the end of the episode. But I wanted to mention it here for anyone who skips our outro, which I don't know why you would. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's where you get to find out what the next episode is going to be. So (laughs) tantalizing. We are taking our reference for today's episode from Northanger Abbey. Catherine Moreland has just been introduced to her friend Isabella's brother, John Thorpe, a pleasure that she could have probably gone without. (laughs) Since gothic novels are on Catherine's brain, her first real conversational gambit is to ask Thorpe if he has read the novel The Mysteries of Udolpho, which as a reminder, if you didn't listen to our episode last October on The Mysteries of Udolpho called The Thing About Catherine and the Black Veil, check it out. Absolutely. Anyway, here is Thorpe's response to Catherine. Udolpho? Oh, Lord, not I. I never read novels. I have something else to do. Catherine, humbled and ashamed, was going to apologize for her question, but he prevented her by saying, Novels are so full of nonsense and stuff. There has not been a tolerably decent one come out since Tom Jones. Except The Monk. I read that the other day. But as for all the others, they are the stupidest things in creation. (laughs) It's a very measured response from him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The Monk, A Romance, is a novel by Matthew Gregory Lewis. And just a very brief bit of biographical info on Lewis. His father worked in government as the chief clerk in the war office and later as the deputy secretary at war. So a pretty well-connected family. His father also owned large plantations in Jamaica, all using the labor of enslaved people. Lewis's mother ran off with a music master when Lewis was a child, which was quite the society scandal. And his father unsuccessfully attempted to divorce his wife, but the bill did not pass Parliament. The two of them quit living together, and Lewis and his sisters stayed with their father, although Lewis remained close with his mother. In fact, she was quite enthusiastic about his literary efforts and encouraged him in his writing. And all of this is kind of relevant when you start thinking about. Lewis's motivations for writing. So he did not need to worry about working to earn an income because of the family wealth. And so his primary motivation in writing was to make a name for himself. According to Christopher McLaughlin in his introduction to The Monk, Lewis was clearly desperate to make a name for himself as a writer in some form, though his allowance from his father and the prospect of a large inheritance meant he did not need financial success as a writer. He wanted only the fame. The novel, The Monk, was initially published anonymously in three volumes on March 12th, 1796, 
though there are apparently some copies that are dated 1795, so there is some debate here, but most scholars are good with the 1796 date. The novel was sold for half a guinea, and it was an immediate sensation. And by sensation, we mean it got immediate widespread reactions of shock. And like most scandalous books, it also became ridiculously popular. People were reading it so they could be shocked as well, so they could be in the know, so they could be appropriately censorious or cavalier about the content. Like, oh, I'm reading The Monk. Or to be like, I can't believe you're reading The Monk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read it too, but you know. (laughs) So to contextualize the shock and scandal a bit, we're going to give a broad summary of the novel. So if you don't want spoilers for The Monk, now is your time to tune out. And we should say too, as we are discussing this novel, we're not going to go into anything in great detail, but this book is truly like every single content warning. So mm-hmm. every single content warning, mm-hmm. every single trigger warning. Yes. So just FYI, like a lot of things will be mentioned, but again, we, we won't go into things in any detail, but this book is a lot. It so. is a lot. And there, I mean, there's a reason like we're kind of making fun of like the sensational element of it just in terms of like the cultural aspect, but we're not making fun of the fact that this is, this is a very... It's a messed up plot. Messed up novel. Yes. So I am going to be reading a summary from an illustrated and abbreviated version of the novel that was published sometime around 1818. And this summary is directly from the novel's title page, spoilers and all. So (laughs) here we go. The Monk, a romance, in which is depicted the wonderful adventures of Ambrosio, friar of the Order of Capuchins, who was diverted from the track of virtue by the artifices of a female demon that entered his monastery disguised as a novice, and after seducing him from his vow of celibacy, presented him with a branch of enchanted myrtle to obtain the person of the beautiful Antonia of Madrid how he did discover in her chamber her mother, whom he murdered, to keep his crime a secret, and the particulars of the means by which he caused the body of Antonia to be conveyed in sleep to the dreary vaults of his own convent, where he accomplished his wicked machinations on the innocent virgin, whom he then assassinates with a dagger, presented him by his attendant fiend, who afterward betrays him to the judges of the Inquisition, in the dungeons of which he is confined and suffers torture, and how, to escape from thence, he assigns over his soul and body to the devil, who deceives him and inflicts a most ignominious death. I mean, that's a pretty (laughs) decent summary of the main plot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on there, right? And they managed to do that in a single sentence, which is the most impressive part. (laughs) Like one of the most impressive run-on sentences I've read in a while. And the only, thing, the only thing I would want to add to this is that there is actually an entire secondary plot that goes alongside Ambrosio's. And while I'm not going to go into that, just know there is a planned elopement in which the woman plans to escape a convent by dressing up as a ghost known as the Bleeding Nun that haunts the castle. The plan, however, falls apart when her boyfriend accidentally runs away with the actual Bleeding Nun ghost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As one does, as, <laughs> as one does. So there's a lot of these really fantastical elements in the story that lead to this novel being described as a romance. So this is not Hallmark rom-com territory mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. people. 
that genre meant something significantly different in the 18th century than it does today. Romances in the first century of the novel often were stories that had high adventure and departure from realism, so do not set any real expectations of romantic love as the primary plot point in The Monk. So the novel, after it first was published, actually did get a few initial positive reviews. So, for example, in June of 1796, only a few months after it was published, the Monthly Mirror gave the book an entire page worth of praise, saying, quote, We really do not remember to have read a more interesting production. And as early as August of that same year, there were already abridged editions and stage adaptations of The Monk that were becoming available. So people were definitely intrigued. The first edition was so successful that a second edition was published in October of the same year. And Lewis claimed authorship this time since he was feeling pretty confident about the work. He was only 19 when the first edition was published and his book was a big commercial success. But by the time the second edition came out, the reviews of the work started to turn sour. Mm-hmm. So the monthly review, for example, described the book as having, quote, a vein of obscenity that pervades and deforms the whole organization of this novel, which must ever blast in a moral view, the fair fame that, in point of ability, would it would have gained the author, and which rendered the work totally unfit for general circulation. And then, perhaps most famously, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge publishes a review that absolutely unloads on the novel. He writes, The monk is a romance, which, if a parent saw in the hands of a son or daughter, he might reasonably turn pale. And he does not hold back. He has like multiple, multiple pages of thoughts about this. But something that I do find a little bit amusing about Coleridge's review is that along with this moral outrage, he is also really worked up about Lewis's use of magical elements in the novel. He points out that if magic can just like sweep in at any point, then the characters don't really have to develop and the logic of the narrative is undermined. He's really annoyed by this. He writes, quote, Tales of enchantment and witchcraft can never be useful. Our author has contrived to make them pernicious by blending with an irreverent negligence all that is most awfully true in religion with all that is most ridiculously absurd in superstition. He's just like, not only is this morally a wacko book, but I don't like your world building. <laughs> Do not approve of the magical elements. He's like, I only like poems about people returning from voyages at sea. Thank you very much. <laughs> the censure for the book reached a potentially dangerous peak for Lewis when an organization called the Society for Carrying Into Effect His Majesty's Proclamations Against Vice and Immorality, that's the entire name of the society, wow. <laughs> threatened to prosecute Lewis's publisher, John Bell, for obscenity. So the fourth edition of the book, published in 1798, was heavily revised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, according to Lewis Peck, author of A Life of Matthew G. Lewis, he basically takes the third edition and just crosses out anything that could be potentially problematic. Peck says, the fourth edition contains nothing which could endanger the most fragile virtue. He expunged every remotely offensive word in his three volumes with meticulous attention to lust. Ambrosio, formerly a ravisher, becomes an intruder or betrayer. His incontinence, 
which here means lack of self-restraint, changes to weakness or infamy, his lust to desire, his desires to emotions, having indulged in excesses for three editions, Ambrosio, here in the fourth edition, committed an error. Just took everything out. I mean, there really wouldn't be that much left, is the thing. (laughs) Because it goes from three volumes to being one. And you're like, that makes sense. It's basically an executive summary now. Mm -hmm. It's actually just the title page that we read. Yeah, it is the title page. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the censors won a bit of a victory with this new publication and backed off. However, according to Nick Groom, in his introduction to the Oxford World's Classics edition of the novel, the publisher John Bell, quote, had his own revenge. When the fourth edition appeared, he sold off his remaining stock of third editions at twice the original price. Clever. So The Monk continued to be a massively popular novel for years. In fact, Lewis, who did go on to have a very successful career as a playwright, became actually known as Monk Lewis because of this novel. So he was essentially defined as an author by his 19-year-old self's success which I got to say, I don't know how much I would like that personally. Like, that's, that's rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it is time for us to return to Northanger Abbey and how Austen makes use of the reference. And really, this is our chance to dunk on Thorpe, which <laughs> we've all been waiting for. <laughs> so Austen demonstrates throughout the novel that Thorpe is an ignorant windbag and <laughs> that we really shouldn't trust anything he says ever. The scene we read at the top of the episode is really our introduction to his character and just tells us a lot about who he is. You know, (laughs) Austin is giving us a lot of insight into everything you ever needed to know about John Thorpe (laughs) with just a few words out of his mouth, which is unfortunately almost always open because (laughs) this man never stops talking. No filter, no, no idea what he's talking about. He just, you know, keeps talking. So Austin immediately puts Thorpe at odds with Catherine in his disdain of novels as a genre as opposed to the later super swoony support of the novel from Henry Tilney. Like there's, she's not being subtle with that kind of (laughs) juxtaposition. Juxtaposition, exactly. And his only exceptions to his professed disgust of novels are Tom Jones and The Monk. According to Henry Austin, in the author note he included in the first publication of Northanger Abbey, Austin had reservations about Henry Fielding, the author of Tom Jones. So theoretically, if you were reading Northanger Abbey for the first time, you've got the first edition, you're reading it from cover to cover. By the time you get to this reference, you know Austin doesn't care for Tom Jones, and so Thorpe is immediately uncool. She's already kind of set that up. And remember that Austin drafted Northanger Abbey in the mid to late 1790s, which is right in the middle of this brouhaha surrounding the monk and its scandals. So obviously, John Thorpe could have actually read The Monk, That certainly works as a commentary on his taste. But I also don't think it's a stretch to argue that considering the rest of his conversation with Catherine and his supposed knowledge, heavy air quotes, of these other books that they are discussing, that he either just skimmed the monk or is possibly just pulling this title out of the air as a sort of cool and edgy book he's heard about. Or it could just be like a random time. He he doesn't even know what it's about at all. He doesn't even know that it's edgy. He's just like, oh, a book. I've heard some dudes talk about this. I can use this. Yeah. I heard some guys talk about this for sure. Yeah. And that's what's so great about the scene. Any of these options works for the character that Austin is creating. But so, you know, only moments later, for example, he tells Catherine, 
that is like, okay, Radcliffe novels might be pretty okay, but he's just dissed Udolfo. And Catherine's like, um, that's my Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting here to have that kind of juxtaposition again of Udolfo and the monk here, because we mentioned this a little bit in our episode on Udolfo, but Austin seems to actually approve of Radcliffe's version of the Gothic, or at least be, be indulgent of Radcliffe's version of the Gothic, which is about suspense more than anything. It's about that suspense that keeps you kind of working through the plot, and then it resolves all of the potential supernatural elements with a Scooby-Doo-esque kind of reveal. Whereas Lewis's version of the Gothic is to like really lean into the horror and the graphic elements and the supernatural. And it's pretty obvious that Austin thinks this latter version is the less sophisticated version since Thorpe is supposedly into it, right? And Thorpe goes on to bash Camilla, which he can't remember the title of or the author's name, only that she is married to a French emigre. He mentions brief details from the novel's first few chapters, which has led many people to conclude that he didn't make it past the first part of the novel. He sort of like <laughs> picked it up. Skimmed through. Sort of skimmed through, got a, got a few little tidbits, you know. He's like, these are my talking points. I've read enough. Goodbye. Yeah. So he clearly has bad taste because he's bashing Camilla, a novel by Francis Burney, who was one of Austen's favorite authors. And one of the titles that the narrator of Northanger Abbey so strongly defends mm. earlier mm -hmm. in the novel. Yeah, basically Austin is like, Thorpe has lousy taste, if he reads at all. But most likely he probably hasn't even tried any of these novels. He's more likely just parroting ideas that he's heard about all of these works. And by particularly leaning into having just like, where he's like, I just read The Monk. He's demonstrating, according to the logic of the novel, that he is probably just trying to sound edgy and scandalous without knowing pretty much anything at all about it. He's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. Or, or he skimmed through it and just read the edgy parts. He just like skimmed through for the dirty bits. John Thorpe is somebody who could have really benefited from the search feature in a Kindle. You know, oh, that's yeah. what he needed. <laughs> yes, yes. He's like, what is the stuff that I really need to know? Yeah, exactly. And just as a delightful side note, apparently Lord Byron read The Monk. And in his 1813 journals, he was like, quote, it's decent for a novel. So, <laughs> you know, it's not like at the height of my poetry, but it's pretty good. Like if I have to read a novel, I'll, I'll skim the monk. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Byron and Thorpe apparently have the same taste in literature, which is <laughs> just like a fun little tidbit for all of us. But, you know, if, if, if Thorpe is trying to embrace his bad boy persona, like he'd be in decent company if he was, yes. if he was being compared yeah. to Byron, right? So in the 2007 adaptation of Northanger Abbey, there are some really overt allusions to the monk. It's more than just Thorpe's mentioning of it, which he does do in the adaptation. But then later, Isabella is the one who actually tells Catherine a bit more about the novel and, and its scandalous protagonist. And then the film cuts to Catherine reading the book at night. So there's this voiceover of her reading a scene when Ambrosio is using a magic mirror to watch Antonia and undressing and take a bath. And so on screen, Catherine is just like edging closer and closer to the candle and her eyes are getting wider and wider. You can tell that she's just like, what's going to happen? What is happening here? <laughs> and it seems like the inclusion of that first scene where Isabella is kind of talking about it, that it's trying to establish Isabella as a slightly more risque character, which again, this adaptation tends to lean into. And then the scene with Catherine, it's kind of more like it's driving home this idea of sensationalism and the sexual undertones of the work. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's very much so leaning into this idea of that, like, Catherine is being really drawn into the genre. So 
That is The Monk, John Thorpe's supposedly favorite book that he may or may have not read. But speaking of literary references, I wanted to add something to our episode on The Baths in Bath from a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I was reading Evelina by Francis Burney, which was published in 1778. And I had not read it in several years. So I had completely forgotten about the scene. And then when I came across it, I was just like, oh. <laughs> perfect. This is perfect. <laughs> yes. So in the novel, they are visiting Bath. And this is from a letter written by Evelina, recounting a little bit about their visit. At the pump room, I was amazed at the public exhibition of the ladies in the bath. It is true, their heads are covered with bonnets. But the very idea of being seen in such a situation by whoever pleases to look is indelicate. <laughs> and that's like peak Evelina, if you've read this book. And then there's a bit of chat before we get some more discussion on the bathing fashion from a couple of secondary characters. Really now, cried Mr. Lovell, looking also into the bath, I must confess it is, to me, very incomprehensible why the ladies choose that frightful, unbecoming dress to bathe in. <laughs> I have often pondered very seriously upon the subject, but could never hit upon the reason. Well, I declare, said Lady Louisa, I should like of all things to set something new a-going. I always hated bathing because one can get no pretty dress for it. <laughs> so Mr. Lovell and Lady Louisa, not a fan of the bobbing mushroom look. <laughs> Mr. Lovell, quite offended by the very sight of it. And Lady Louisa's like, you know, if we could just come up with better outfits, I might be more into bathing. I love it. What a fabulous description. So that's just a little extra bit for our Bass and Bath episode. Mm -hmm. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. We are going to be taking a few weeks off because we will be presenting at AustinCon, which is just around the corner on November 5th, Australia time. We'll actually be presenting Friday evening U.S. time, so make sure to check your time zones and all that. You can purchase tickets for the virtual option by going to 24caratproductions.com, and that's 24, the number, carrot, the vegetable, productions.com. And when we return, we will be talking about Mrs. Croft's time at sea with our guest, Maria Petrillo. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.